0: Today on Backroom Politics, coverage on the latest developments on the tragic shooting at the Washington Navy Yard here in Washington D.C. Our thoughts around the table from the Backroom Politics team. Joining us today for a talk on the fiscal crisis and the fiscal debate upcoming, former Comptroller General of the United States Charles Belcher will be joining us for the show. Where we talk all things. Can a deal be done? Is it even possible? And, oh, by the way, the Senate just asked the Speaker, hey, send us something. What possibly could they send them? This and tell me a story today on Backroom Politics.
1: Live from Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington. This is Backroom Politics. To join the discussion, you can call toll-free 1-877-662-3713. And now, the moderator of Backroom Politics, Justin Russell.
0: Good afternoon out there in Radio Land. It's Tuesday here in the capital Washington, D.C., which means it is time for the best political talk show you've never heard of. It's time for Backroom Politics Live on Blog Talk Radio from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Joining me as they do every Tuesday to my left, he is the former eight-term member of Congress representing Washington's 2nd Congressional District. He is Congressman Al Swift. Hello, Congressman. Hello
1: on one of the last beautiful
0: days of summer. Absolutely. To my 11 o'clock today, he is the former floor chief for then Congressman General R. 40 He's the former Vice President of Governor Affairs for the National Broadcasting Corporation. He is the Honorable
2: Bob Hines. Hello, Bob. Hello, uh, Justin. It's not the last day of summer. It's the
0: first day of fall. Hey, yeah, yeah well, the weather's outside. It's beautiful. I yeah. used do this from a you disagree with me already. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Segment, yeah, segment time <laughs> to my 12 o'clock. She is the former General Counsel to the Homeland Security <laughs> Committee in the House of Representatives, former General Counsel to the Maritime Administration. She is the Honorable Denise Krepp. Hello, Denise.
3: Hello, Justin.
0: And to my one o'clock, joining us is our special guest. He is the former Comptroller General of the United States. He is General Charles Bowsher. Hi, Chuck. How are you? I'm doing Welcome, fine, back. Welcome It's back. good to be back. We appreciate you having. And to my three o'clock, he is the former Under Secretary of Commerce. He is a longtime Senate staffer who has served at last count under four presidents. He's a very distinguished and jolly fellow from the Stimson Center. He is the Honorable Alan Moore. Hello, Alan. Hello, Justin. And to my right, which is unusual, he is the former executive director of the Democratic Party, of the great state of Maryland. He is Washington insider Carl Toobin. Hello, Carl. Hello, Justin. Well, obviously, we're going to start off on a little bit of a, of a sad note. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the events that happened yesterday here in Washington, D.C. For those of you who are not familiar, uh, about, about the time rush hour happening in D.C., a lone gunman uh, walks into the Washington Navy Yard and the headquarters building for Naval Sea Systems Command. He uh, brings with him several uh, firearms, including an AR-15, a shotgun, and a handgun, according to police sources, and Aaron Alexis, a 34 year old from Fort Worth, Texas, proceeds to tragically take the lives of 12 people and injuring countless others, including a uh, Metropolitan Police Department uh, uniform officer and a uniform officer from the Washington Naval District Police. Uh, it pretty much put most of Southeast D.C and a lot of the federal government on heightened alert. It locked down most of that part of Capitol Hill. But as much tragedy as there was, there was a lot of heroics, a lot of, as we like to say, outstanding police work. We're going to talk about that in a second. Uh, First of all, our thoughts and our prayers go out to those who lost loved ones uh, in this tragic event. Uh, Our thoughts and prayers are obviously with those that are recovering from their injuries. Uh, We wish them uh, Godspeed in in their recovery. But let's talk a little bit about what happened and and how this happened. Um, Denise, I know that uh, you and I both live on the Hill relatively blocks away. Uh, Your children go to one of the elementary schools right there. Uh, The D.C. public school system and the mayor, uh, Vince Gray, put D.C. public schools on lockdown. Uh, I believe that your kids were involved in the lockdown as well. They put eight schools
3: on lockdown, and these are the eight schools that were located on Capitol Hill. And and by the way, for the listeners um, who are following us today, the gentlemen at the Navy are just made this personal for a good majority of people, not only who live on Capitol Hill, but those who legislate on Capitol Hill. Uh, my daughters go to school with members of Congress kids. I'm talking about, you know, Senator Begich, Chris Dodd, Ryan's Priebus, Linda Sanchez. Those are just the members I know about at the schools in that area. Then you're talking about the major, you know, Uh, lobbyists, to major staffers. You just made reality out of something that we'd always been talking about, of what's locked down, what's locked down in Fort Hood, what's locked down in Waco, what's locked down anywhere
4: else.
0: You just made it personal. And you
3: scared the shit out of our children.
4: Okay, easy on that
0: language, but I will (laughs) say though, uh, you know, this is not... This is not anything that's unusual to D.C. I mean, unfortunately, we saw it during September 11th. Uh, We we saw it uh, in in other instances where Senate office buildings or House office buildings have gone into lockdown. Uh, It it, it pretty much drives home the fact, you know, we see,
2: Congressman Al, uh,
0: terrorism all over the place. We see acts of violence throughout the country. We hear about it on the news, but... When it's in your backyard, it's always an eye-opener. I guess it is for you as well. Of
1: course. When it happens to you or the guy next door, it's very, very different than the guy in the next state. On the other hand, it intrigues me the fact that we don't know yet for sure whether this was an act of terrorism or not. The police, I believe, believe that it was probably not. Yeah, correct. Uh, And... Whether it's terrorism or not is important, because terrorists, you understand, their motives, and it's very difficult to know what to do about them and so forth. But if it was not terrorism, if this was a, if this was a man, and I'm and I'm stealing from Denise on this, if this was a guy who simply lost control of himself, became insane temporarily, perhaps, then. This is a whole different thing. And uh, I, w- I would like to defer to to uh, Denise to make the rest of her point because it is her point, not mine.
3: Well, and, and Justin, the point I've got is it's very hard to explain to a five-year-old, which is what I had to do last night, of why I couldn't pick her up early and, and why it happened. I mean, my five-year-old was saying, well, why did he shoot some mommy? And my response was, I don't know, sweetie. I honestly don't know. But it was... It was heart-wrenching, not only for me as a parent, but my next-door neighbor uh, works in the complex. The FBI insisted that everybody who was evacuated, evacuated yesterday be evacuated with their hands up. So they had to walk out with their hands up because they weren't sure if anybody had any suspicious packages. And as she was walking out, she saw the body bags. I mean, that traumatized
0: everybody. I mean, it was awful. I mean, unfortunately, you know, it's no secret. I'm coming from a law enforcement background. Uh, you know, it's unfortunate that that type of scene plays out. Uh, that's going to happen, and 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 you're right. You never get over seeing that type of of, of a scene. You can't unforget that, uh, especially when, you know, you get up at five o'clock in the morning from your home in suburban Maryland. You drive in, and all of a sudden, at 8.30, your entire world changes. Um, it, it, it's definitely something you can't unseen. But I, I, I do want to talk a little bit. You know, the media coverage was... But Carson, I well, got, I just wanted to, to, to...
1: Denise didn't get to the point that she made earlier that I thought was important, and we may want to discuss, maybe not right away, but later. And that is that <clears throat> initially... We think how tragic we think about children, we think about all of that. But mark my words, this will move to gun control.
3: I I hope so. And, and, And the reason, and I'll be very honest with you, is that we've already had Newtown. We've already had children killed. We've already had naval civilian and contractors killed. They went to work. They died. Nobody should go to work and fear for the fact of whether or not they're going to have some random idiot pull a gun out and shoot them. That's wrong.
1: But I have a feeling that may go counter to yours, Denise, and that is that if we're going to wait around until we get gun control legislation, uh, we'll all be dead and our grandchildren will be doddering toward the (laughs) grave. The other part of this, however, is what are we doing about mental health? What are we doing about being able to identify uh, potentially crazy people. That's, a, that's another approach to the problem oh. that we uh, usually, uh, usually gets buried in the debate over gun control.
0: Well, th- this is obviously a topic that, that, that's that been brought up. I mean, the media has been armchair quarterbacking as they tend to do from time to time uh, after this event. Uh, the, the suspect, uh, uh, Aaron Alexis, apparently did have what some are calling PTSD. It is alleged that he was a rescuer after 9-11 in the Rumble at World Trade Center. Uh, It is alleged that he just was mentally unstable. Uh, it, It brings up several questions about how we as a country handle mental illness. It's no different than the discussion we heard after the shooting of Gabby Giffords. It's no different than after after the shootings, uh, tragic shootings at Newtown, Carl Cuban.
4: Well, I think I think um, uh, I think that background checks should include mental health, and evidently uh, from what I heard on the TV yesterday, it didn't include mental health. And if it did, he might not have the uh, the uh, um, clearance that he that he had. And it's it's plain that this was in his background. Well, I mean, the question of mental illness
0: is something that they're going to fight about. You know, do you do you admit that you have had mental illness as part of a gun background check? Then you got to start getting into HIPAA issues, legalities regarding uh, uh, healthcare privacy, all kinds of different issues. That's that's a, that is a very difficult argument that a lot of people, I think, will be making. But I do want to go to one subject though, is uh, and I want to go to Chuck Bowser. You know. A lot of people are saying, how did this guy get a gun into a, a cleared facility, a secured facility like the Washington Navy Yard? For those who don't know, you literally have to walk into the Washington Navy Yard. You can't drive anymore. And you have to go through a series of security checkpoints to get in. Um, the question comes up is, how did he get it in? But it also goes to the fact that how did he get the clearance? It calls into question a GAO report that was written several years ago about the effectiveness of DSS in their screens. Chuck, do you have any thoughts on that?
5: Well, um, you know, it's the old story about uh, it's hard to believe how you could get by with a shotgun going through the gate. Now, you just said that you have to walk in. I have gone through there recently in a car because I had a letter saying that I was going to a meeting there. So maybe these guys were on contract, and they I don't know how they arrived there, but maybe they went through there in a car rather than walking. But
0: when when we look at security, because now a lot of people are now calling on your old agency, the GAO, to start an investigation, and the chief of naval operations has himself declared that there will be an investigation into the way they're secured. Right. with armchair quarterbacking predominant in these types of situations does the GAO take into account all of the factors and come up with a report that government actually should and could implement as part of their jurisdiction if,
5: if they get asked by the Congress which I expect that you would suggest they will be asked to look at that, that that's the kind of report they'll issue yeah.
2: Um Bob Hines uh, I, I've heard it reported uh, that while he was in the army, as a reserve, Navy, 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 Navy reserve, reserve. Navy reserve. Yeah. that he had at least three or four um, call-ups before before higher ups because of his activities, his responses to things, and apparently was a troublemaker, and a, and and, a, and apparently a difficult guy. How does someone like that? Get, a, get an easy clearance. Well, that, that's, a, that's a big question. I mean, if you look at it, uh, this gentleman or
0: this this, this animal, oh, however oh. you want to look at it, he literally had several run-ins with police, yeah. some while a member of the Navy Reserves, uh, some after yep. and before. Uh, I know of, according to several sources, including CNN and NBC, at least four incidents, inclu- and two of them include use of a firearm. It it does go into question, and Chuck, the effectiveness of DSS, the Defense Security Service, which is the governing authority in conjunction with the Office of Personnel Management of issuing these clearances. Is this an issue where maybe DSS or OPM may have fallen down on the job, or are they taxed out, they just don't have the resources to do the quality stuff that's out there?
5: Um, I always think you cannot fall back on the idea you don't have enough uh, people to do the job. In other words, I think um, uh, in all probability there was a real slip-up in this case.
0: Denise crap. The problem
2: is
3: going to be that he, uh, well, first of all the military is going to go back and say how did he get an honorable discharge? Because mm-hmm. he's on the you DD-215, know, it's going to say honorable discharge. How he's got he got a
2: general discharge. Yeah. No, he,
3: no, he, no, it, it was. I think
2: it was honorable. It, it was a general. It was
4: a general discharge.
0: Pretty consistent.
4: All right, so, it all
3: right, so, right. The, so the general discharge. Why didn't they go back and say, why did you get a general general discharge and not get an honorable discharge? So that's the first question, and and the second one is is going to be, you know, when you start looking at all of this, I think we're going to go back and look at the contractors. Who contracted this work out, and were you truly picking apart some of this information, and were you looking at it? It doesn't look like
0: they were picking it apart. Well, several sources, including The Washington Post and CNN, are reporting that uh, he was on a contract at one time uh, that uh, was a a prime contract under H.P. Hewlett-Packard. Uh, he was working for a subcontractor on the Navy Marine Corps intranet system. Uh, he had been there a relatively short time, but the bigger issue is also he used somebody else's badge to get in. Or, or Alan Moore? Yeah.
6: He, what, one of the problems we always face in these kinds of situations 24, within 24 hours is there's a lot of stuff that gets reported a lot of this stuff gets reported is wrong, and then we keep coming back around to try to put pieces into place. What was his discharge? Probably a general discharge because that's what's been reported. Did he have an AR-15? The reports out today are, no, he didn't have an AR-15, although yesterday the report was that's what he had looks like he didn't have one but he had some kind of automatic uh... handgun which he may have taken off of a policeman we know he had a shotgun everything else and and a couple of handguns but apparently no no AR-15 there the the, the question of how much trouble he was in in the past that's beginning to emerge and there are clear questions about whether or not an appropriate background check was done on the guy what we do know is the guy went crazy for some reason. We don't have a note. He's dead. The people who knew him say nice things. They say strange things. It's a whole mixed bag. We just have to be really careful about being precise in the conclusions that we draw because the information keeps changing. At one point yesterday, they were there were two shooters. Then there were three shooters. Then there were two shooters. And then it came, came back to one. just one shooter. So we, we've, we've, we've got to be careful what you know how how specific and certain we are about these things because the stuff is continually changing it does
0: you know the the issue of the AR15 the the AR15 question for example uh I was talking to two police officers one federal one metropolitan police department both confirming that there was an AR15 involved uh now is that accurate? that's information that they're getting from the people that the, the active shooting team that and the emergency response team for the park police that actually went in and actually did uh, subdue uh, the suspect. There's going to be a large investigation, there's no question. The question I have now though is, in all of this, you know, when it happens outside of DC, we rely solely on the 24-hour news channels and some of the local and, and even some of the web-based media for information about these tragedies. But now that it's happened in our backyard, we saw literally 24-hour news coverage on the subject. Did the media do a good job, or are they more of a hindrance? Congressman Al. As one who uh, thoroughly enjoys kicking them in the butt whenever I
1: can, I must say that uh, I was watching Channel 4. Uh, I thought it was excellent. Now, I I suspect the other channels were as well. <clears throat> the and Channel Four was reporting a lot of things that they had found had been in error re- reported earlier. So they were cleaning up after themselves as they went. That's a very very difficult job. They, they did a good one.
3: And, and I have to ask you uh, what Al just said. I mean, as a parent of a child in lockdown, it was very helpful to be able to watch TV to get a better understanding of what was going on. Um, you know the DC DC public school system. You know this is the first time they've ever had anybody go under lockdown. So I mean, when did you ma-
6: define what that meant? Oh what, what lockdown What, what does was?
3: lockdown mean? Well, lockdown means that nobody comes in and nobody goes out, which means that they lock the doors. And if you're a parent and you call into the school and say, "Can I get my daughter out?" The answer is no. You are not allowed to come to the school. We will not open the door for you, regardless of the fact that you are her mother, and regardless of the fact that you desperately want your daughter. You will not be allowed to have your child... And in filled. one
1: case, regardless of whether you're a congressman. Yeah, exactly.
3: Right. In several cases, regardless of whether or not you're a congressman. There were also parents locked in. They were actually there meeting with teachers, and when the doors were locked, they weren't allowed out. So they spent the entire day at school. Lockdown is truly the doors closed. You're not coming in. You're not leaving. So this is a learning experience for DCPS, and I want to say thank you very much because after the first couple of hours and after they realized that you know, they had to get out, they had a phenomenal system of, of explaining to parents what was going on. We were getting robocalls, we were getting emails from teachers, we were getting a lot of information. And the best thing that happened yesterday was they didn't tell the children anything. Right. That was the best thing to be able to pick up your own child and be able to explain it to them face to face and say, "This is what happened," and we're going to have individual conversations with you. Right.
6: Alan Moore, what did what did they say to the kids? Were the kids even aware there was something called a lockdown in place, or for them? Was everything just the normal way, normal As teachers, everything normal Everything was class?
3: normal at our school. Um, it was raining yesterday, so the, the principal just went over the intercom and said, it's raining, you're not going outside. We're going to sit and go to the library. We're going to go to the cafeteria. We're going to do whatever we need to do. And they did a phenomenal job making sure that the kids were not aware of what was happening. Now, now my daughters are in elementary school. I am sure, given the fact that there are electronics in middle school and high school, that the middle school and high school that was locked down, had a little bit more difficulty trying to explain well, what
0: was the, going on. The understanding that we have is, is in talking to a, a couple of people in the Metropolitan Police Department is that Eastern High School, the war got around and that they finally did release to the fact that it was a lockdown. It was a security issue. Eastern High School being the only high school in the D.C. public school system that was impacted by this event. Um, it, it, and, that's, and that's never easy. That, that's never easy uh, in a public school situation. Uh, I, I, I do want to I do want to ask around the table in in the last couple of minutes on the segment that, you know, we we see a lot of, of, you know, on TV of how this actually goes down, but when you see it in real time, it kind of changes your perspective. Watching Law and Order and watching these cop shows on TV doesn't give you the real perspective. When when we go back and we look at it, it it, it seems to me at least uh, that not just the law enforcement, but... The entire government setup, whether it was the federal government doing what they did, segregating, getting them out safe, looking at the protection of the people, and then once they were out, getting them out safely in buses to a remote location, or whether it was law enforcement responding. You've got to give credit where when you complain about taxes, which we're going to talk about at length here in the next few segments, the tax money actually went to work in a good way today. Would you agree with that, Congressman Hill?
1: Oh yes, and, and, and I, I thought the, the Washington DC. Chief of Police was very, was very, very impressive. And what you see in the movies and on television frequently is that when frequently is when the FBI moves in, the local cops get all upset and what have you, and that's a kind of a standard <laughs> part of plots. Uh, she seemed to be welcoming the FBI's takeover. Uh, Continue to cooperate with them. She gave the Park Police uh, a a lot of credit. Uh, I I thought she behaved like somebody that uh, I think should be a chief of police.
5: Yeah,
0: and I I do want to give a shout out to uh, my friends at Park Police, and and particularly the Special Operations Division, in particular the Aviation Unit at Park Police. Mm -hmm. Uh, they, They had Eagle One up there, literally pulling survivors off the route in stokes litters and getting them to hospital uh treatment as needed really an outstanding job with park police but an outstanding job done by everybody uh and and a good demonstration of interoperability which chuck i know you know interoperability and communicating between the agencies has always been an issue right. it seems to have may have
5: worked in this incident yeah, wouldn't you agree no it seemed to me yeah it did yeah, uh, Carl Tubman.
4: Well, it's not only that; it was you know Montgomery County sent people in. We had the SWAT uh, team from the um, National Park Service, which uh, which evidently uh, killed him, um, and all these different things happening together uh, was just absolutely incredible. Yeah. Yesterday, it worked, and I mean, I wish we had had something like
2: that more on at 9/11. I mean, to, to have all those things mesh. Bob Hines, last word. Uh, I'd say everything we have just said about the response is, is true and accurate, and shows you how good the system can work. What's unfortunate was, is somehow this guy got in there and had to, yeah, to do no it. No question. And that was just somehow that's got to be fixed.
0: The FBI has taken over the investigation. Obviously, this is going to be a long investigation. They are continuously seeking out uh, information. If anybody out in our broadcasting uh, listening area uh, has any information. Regarding this incident, whether here in D.C. or out in Texas or New York or Seattle, the FBI has asked that we mention the fact that if you have any information, you can call 1-800-CALL-FBI and provide the information to them. Any information, as little or as big, is greatly appreciated. They obviously have got to put this investigation to rest. Uh, and again, kudos goes out to... Uh, the the public safety folks that were involved and also kudos to uh, the contractors and the Navy civilian personnel that were actually on base Uh, the interviews of those coming out they were cool they were collected it was a stressful situation Uh, we gotta give a lot of props out for that as well Uh, with that uh, we're going to take a quick break when we come back we're going to get in the heart of our discussion today it's about the fiscal crisis that looms over the US Serious seems to have been put to bed temporarily. Now, look at cleaning up our own house. This is Backroom Politics live from Shelly's Backroom, 1331 S Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington D.C. We'll be back in three minutes. Stay with us. You know, for those who listen to Backroom Politics and know about Shelly's Backroom. They think of it as some sort of cigar bar where politicians go to smoke their cigars and drink their martinis. Actually, what you don't know about Shelley's Back Room, Shelley's Back Room has one of the greatest menus in the city. I kid you not. You've got the campfire wings, famous campfire wings, one pound of roasted, not fried, seasoned, marinated jumbo chicken rings served with their own special honey mustard sauce. Folks, if you like chicken wings, you've never had the campfire wings. Best wings in the city, bar none. I guarantee If you don't like it, Al, you can call us up and tell us that you don't like it. Uh, you have daily specials. Come down on a day when they have the Justin Chicken Sandwich. The sandwich named after me, breaded chicken breast, provolone cheese, Thick-cut bacon on a Kaiser roll served with a honey mustard sauce. Folks, it doesn't get more artery-clogging than that, but it is worth it. Come down to Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. The premier sponsor of backroom Politics. here live in Shelley's back room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. This is Backroom Politics Live on Block Talk Radio. Uh, we're going to change subjects real quick and talk about the latest fear that's gone over Congress,
2: and that is
0: the debt ceiling debate. We won't even talk about the budget until after the 5 o'clock hour, but let's talk debt limit. Debt limit now, according to Secretary of the Treasury, Jack Lou, is now due in counting, I believe it's 13 days. We have 13 days to clean this up, and it is becoming a political mess. However, in a letter being circulated by Senator Peter Welsh of Vermont, he has circulated a letter by the Democratic, by the Democratic leadership in the Senate saying that they are committed, according to several sources, in cleaning up and having a clean debt limit bill to go through. The question is... And I'm going to go to you, Bob. Is he living in a dream world? but who's the he? I'm sorry. Who's the he that we're (laughs) talking about? Oh, uh, uh, Senator Welsh of Vermont. There is no such person. Senator Peter Welsh, Democrat, or I'm sorry, Congressman. Congressman Peter Welsh of Vermont. My bad, my bad, my bad. I'm sorry. Congressman, I had the Senate. I had the (laughs) Senate.
4: Can
0: Can Peter Welsh in the House get that through? Well.
2: The the president has we're talking about now the debt ceiling right yes the president has said he will not negotiate anything except a clean package of, of a a clean extension. Decision, increasing the debt ceiling and the republicans are are adamant I think that's the accurate word adamant that they want to be able to negotiate some changes that will help reduce the deficit. They're primarily, I believe, probably looking at uh, some entitlement changes. Uh, The Democrats, obviously, those are holy grail to them. And to the Republicans, it's what they have to do to clean everything up. And the truth of the matter is every single member of Congress knows that what the Republicans want to do is going to have to be done at some time and in some way and some place. But the Democrats don't want to touch it. So it's going to be a real Donnybrook in the House. I suspect that, uh, and I don't know, exactly what the two parties are going to do and how they're going to do it, but uh, they're going to have to deal with the reality that they have to pass something because the government will default if the, in about the middle of October. Isn't that right, Chuck? Yeah. But well, Chuck, so, so uh, they'll default
0: if we don't do something. Well, Chuck, in in the letter that uh, was circulated by Congressman Welsh that went to President Obama, it basically says, and I quote, according to a story out of uh, Politico, uh, it says, I quote, defaulting on our obligations would cause immediate and irreparable harm to America's economy, unquote. Is that just strong language, or is there some reality embedded in that?
5: Well, there's some reality, and that is that they will hit the markets first. In other words, the markets have gone done very well the last uh, year or two here, and um, I don't think either party's going to want to have... A big drop in the stock market or a big volatility in the government bond market, if it uh, happen, and take the blame. So that's one reason why I think there will be a lot of maneuvering here in the next few weeks. But I truly think that the uh, debt limit will either get pushed off, or you will end up with it. And most of the focus might well be on the um, trying to get the continuing resolution and the debt limit tied together, and that'll make it even more complicated. Uh, but in the long run, my best prediction is that uh, uh, there there will be some compromises made, but I think we will not have a uh, prolonged government shutdown.
0: But, but, but in talking with the political rhetoric that's going around just the debt ceiling right now, Congressman Al, uh, you have several strong words coming out of the administration, including... Mm-hmm. Treasury Secretary Jack Lew who said and I quote, I want to repeat what the President has already made clear. He will not negotiate over the debt ceiling. He's basically planting the flag in the in the terra firma saying, we're not budging. Try as you might, we still hold the White House and the Senate. Is, is this just rhetoric or are the Democrats ready for a fight? It's just politics. <clears throat> One of the things that, that
2: puzzled
1: and astounded me when I was in Congress is the relatively small number of members that were willing to go home and explain what the debt limit is to their public yeah. it's uh it's because the public thinks that if you can seal off the debt limit uh you you will, you will solve the problem it solves no problem at all this is paying off a credit card bill and nobody ever said that you uh that, that you stop spending by not paying off your credit card bill. That explanation is so simple and so easy to understand. I don't know why more members of Congress haven't got the guts to go out and explain that to their constituents.
0: But Alan Moore, the, the Republicans in the House and some in the Senate have always came out and saying, "Look, this is a matter of we, you know, just continuous gross overspending by the government." Number one target is they don't want to negotiate on debt ceiling unless they repeal Obamacare. Is tying Obamacare to debt limit ceiling rights, is that a smart play for the Republicans? Well,
6: there are some Republicans, a relatively small group, who have decided it's smart for them. So they're holding out and pushing this. I think, as Chuck said, what we are seeing partly because of the coincidence of timing of government spending has to be renewed by the end of this month, September 30th, which happens to be about the time that we reach the so-called debt limit that is allowed under current law, the borrowing that was permitted using, using <laughs> Al's Reference to credit card, you get a typically there's a maximum amount you can borrow. We're approaching that very closely. We're spending a lot more than we're bringing in in revenue every year, this year in the neighborhood of $800 billion. So we have to keep increasing the debt limit to function and we have to continue appropriating money to function. It looks like these two things are going to get tied together partly because of the coincidence of timing. Now, That allows for some interesting opportunity. You could cut a deal on the spending stuff and pretend that the debt limit wasn't part of that and that you didn't negotiate over the debt limit. You only negotiated over the spending. There are going to be negotiations. They are underway right now, and the fact that the president has... Drawn a new, pardon the expression, red line in the sand, <laughs> saying we are not going to negotiate over the debt limit like we've done the last couple of times. Um, it sounds tough and strong, but it's also without precedent in in his administration. So, and does that mean when when we say no negotiation, how about just a little baby piece? Well, of course he's going to take a little baby piece, and it just so happens that all of this is happening at the same time we have to fund government. So the stuff is jammed together. September 30th is a very important date. Certain decisions have to be made, even if we just kick the can down the road a little bit. Having said that, the Republicans have created an enormous problem for themselves because they're not united, and uh, this creates... Huge difficulties for Speaker John Boehner in the House. But like the president, John Boehner sought the job. He knew it would be hard. It's harder than he thought. The president sought his job. He knew it would be hard. It's harder than he thought. Get on with it, guys. We need government to continue operating, and we need to honor our deaths.
0: But it, it, it does sound like, Denise, the, the Democrats are literally digging their feet in Uh, looking at a prolonged fight with some key Republicans. This does call into question the president's role in this. The Democratic letter that went to the president commends him on his strong leadership. A lot of Republicans saying there's been no leadership coming out of the White House on this issue in particular. Is this another instance of the president having a messaging problem that he can't get out? Well, first of all, Justin, when you say Democrat, a Democrat
3: means many things. It, it, it means a party. It also means the House, the Senate, and the presidency. So you cannot make the assumption, and the same thing, by the way, applies to the Republicans, that a House, a Senate, and a, um, a presidential, or a, a president who's a Democrat will all agree. So what I'm betting is going to happen is that you are going to see some very interesting Democrats in the House who might be willing to maneuver and get some things that they want in order to give John Boehner what he needs, because John Boehner is not going to be able to pick up a good chunk of those Tea Party folks. So there's going to be some interesting give and take over some
0: folks who think that there may be an
3: opportunity to get things that may not necessarily have happened before.
0: But, Bob Hines, when you look at who signed this letter that went to the White House, to Jack Lew and was distributed to the media, the people who signed this letter include Nancy Pelosi, Minority leaders, Steny Hoyer, the whip, uh, Jim Clyburn, uh, head of the caucus, Xavier Bacera. These are your top five leaders in the House Democrats. Oh, there there was also Joe Crowley. Does Um, anybody that matter, did they sign? it? Are you saying that the entire minority leadership in the House doesn't matter?
6: On this particular issue, they don't matter yet. And the fact that a bunch of them write a letter... To the president, saying, "Hey, had, it's we're not, not
0: tough, Mr. President." No, they're saying they're saying in this letter, "Hey, wait a minute, we're not going to budge. We're not going to negotiate. We're not maneuvering. It. they are standing in they,
6: they, they aren't invited to negotiate. It's the president who has to negotiate with the Republicans in the House on this one. The Democrats have to stand on the side, except for the fact that the, the, the John Boehner probably needs some of their votes. But if the president and Boehner cut a deal. Believe me, there are Democrats who will
0: come on board. But, Bob, we've seen this deal before in other budget items Mm -hmm. where Boehner and Obama have come together. We seem to have a deal.
2: It's being reported there's a deal. And then the deal disappears. But there's never quite a deal. And part of it is because the president then goes up and talks to people on Capitol Hill and they blow up. Now, this may be uh, the same problem but I think Alan is exactly right. The folks who sent that letter to the president are not players now. They will be shortly uh, if there is any agreement between Boehner and the president. And Boehner has got at least as big a problem in his group of membership than the president can ever have in the Democrats in the House. I mean, Mr. Boehner has probably got, um, oh, I would say 60... 50 to 60, wouldn't you say, Chuck? 50 to 60 members who are absolutely, only have one focus in mind. By golly, the only thing we're after is defunding Obamacare, which is a ridiculous idea at the moment. It's much more important to get something done on the funding of the government. The only way to do that, probably, is to reach a deal that... That both the president is willing to sign off to, and, and Boehner can carry enough Republicans on, and I don't know exactly what that is. It, it seemed to me a while back ago that it was going to have to be some sort of maneuvers on uh, on entitlements, and then a deal on the on the money. Now it looks like it's uh, it's it's broader than that. Denise crap
3: and, and the other thing that Congressman knows this one is that when you have members who are in sensitive districts. Sometimes leadership kind of turns a blind eye and says, I don't know what you're doing, and I'm not going to make you pay for what you've just done. So it will be in the interest for both sides, depending on how this happens, for people to make deals.
0: But, Chuck Bowser, when we talk about 50 or 60 Republicans that are coming off the reservation, per se, that's a pretty substantial number. That's enough to at least kill any possible deal, or at least put damage into any deal, that may come out of the Speaker's office in dealing with the White House. There seem to be tied, I guess a bigger question is, is tying Obamacare into the debt ceiling question, is that a red herring, and do they really have a leg to stand on when bringing it in?
5: No, what they're going to do is they're going to try something like that, and then uh, the people that want to do that, they'll get some credit back home in their home district. and and that, and then you'll move on uh, to where that won't be uh, part of the uh, final package. One thing I think is important to remember in this whole uh, exercise, and that is uh, it's very common to have compromises in the continuing resolution. In other words, when I was at the Pentagon, lots of times the Pentagon was up there arguing for relief on certain things in the um, uh, continuing resolution, things like that. So I think most of the uh, eventual uh, uh, deals will be, if I had to guess, in the continuing resolution and the debt ceiling will um, uh, be pretty clean uh, in the final analysis. But the big, a couple of the big issues will be tied to the debt ceiling so that people can get more publicity, get more um, credit back home. On uh, the, the fact that they tried to get rid of Obamacare,
2: Bob lines to follow on what Chuck said, I think that probably there's very little chance that we 'll get a continuing resolution that uh, takes account of what each side wants to solve how they want to solve the problem. I expect to see a relatively short term continuing resolution uh, and that, and, then, and then the negotiations continue because I don't see how it's going to be possible, even though the House and the Senate have canceled their their recess later this month, uh, I don't see how they're going to be able to get it done in two weeks. If there are just too many uh, different groups and different ideas in both parties, and I think it's going to take a little longer than that. Alan Moore. Yeah, I remember what the
6: what the House Republicans tried just a couple of weeks ago. They wanted to take a spending bill, so-called continuing resolution, and And push it out until the end of November so giving themselves time to negotiate further all the details of spending what to do about the so-called sequester or across the board spending cuts which doubles in size this year if nothing is done exacting even more pain on the defense budget and on discretionary spending and then we have the debt limit my hunch is that yes, they will both. But yet, yes, spending will be kicked down the road. My guess is, and this wouldn't be all bad, is that they'll join the debt limit at the hip with the spending bill, and it too will be kicked down the road, but only until more or less a date certain. So that, defines- you, don't, you don't want two major separate negotiations, all of which are dealing with government spending, um, to go on disconnected i think that because of this accidental uh, this accident of timing if you will that they that they're joined and they will stay joined until they're resolved. Now, whether at the but end of the
0: day, but doesn't that pick away at the credibility of the White House? For, after your Treasury Secretary, no, and the White no, House no. said, it, "We're going to stand firm on this. It's no, going to be clean." But
6: it, it, no. clean. It can be clean for six weeks. It can be clean for two months. It, you, both sides will be able to say they're joined together now. In in reality, even if it might be two separate measures, the point is that they're going to expire about the same time. I'm guessing they'll be continued for about the same period of time so that when they're resolved, they're resolved together.
0: Chuck, you agree with this, I take it?
5: Yeah, I do. And I think actually the president and the White House is in the stronger position because already the, uh, the population has been through this two or three times and they really see that the, con- the congressional groups are playing for a certain advantage, but they know that in the final analysis, uh, they, they aren't going to get rid of Obama.
0: Are the Republicans now at a point where they're just crying wolf about this?
5: they that not crying wolf. They're really trying to get some home district advantages, it seems to me. And um, if you read the uh, Wall Street Journal editorial, which you know generally is very much behind the Republicans, they're telling them not to do it don't yep. don't tie this uh, in today and then uh, you've seen some of the, the more conservative pundits on the television doing the same thing so um, uh, th- this is a little more uh, uh, down the road. This ball game is not the first time they've played this ball game, and it's been hurting the Congress's reputation. that's why the uh, the reputation of Congress is so low. And so I think that, yeah, that this will um, uh, get worked out. I, I do believe, Alan, that it, it it might go for a short term. They'll merge it. They'll pull it, uh, do it uh, down the road. But in the final analysis, I don't see Obamacare in any way being um, uh, thrown out because of this maneuver.
4: Carl Toobin. What does that do though to the uh, September 30th deadline as far as the, that limit is concerned?
5: Yeah, I have you to mean- do something about it. Right, because, I mean, you've know, you got... No, I will say this, that when I worked on the debt limit uh, situations a couple of times when I was in office, um, during the uh, Clinton administration it would have been, why uh, I was amazed at the flexibility that the Treasury has. uh, And the Secretary, Bob Rubin at the time, came over and explained it to us. And then even my experts said, oh, there's even more flexibility there, Mr. Secretary, if you just look hard. <laughs> and, of course, there's always a lot of flexibility at the Pentagon. Bob
2: Einstein. <laughs> there's one other piece that I think we should remember, too. The sequester. Uh, it is uh, a 10-year bill. It's yeah. a 10-year law. It's yeah. not touched. Yeah. One of the nice things about this, the negotiations that are going to be taking taking place is there's the opportunity to play with the sequester mm-hmm. and to move, you know, to pull back in some areas and, and extend in others. So both sides have something to play with outside of just the budget numbers and just the deficit numbers. Yeah, and if I <laughs> and if could
4: add on pro- to that. They have
2: programmatic money they're playing with, yeah. and that's important. <laughs> yeah,
5: and if I could add on to that, I can tell you right now that the um, – uh Pentagon would love to get rid of the sequester. If they come to the conclusion that they can't get rid of the sequester, one of the big compromises they'll be looking to try to achieve is flexibility in how the sequester exactly. is done. Uh,
0: before I go to the, uh, Chuck, real quickly, when we talk about the sequester, in your opinion, did the sequester do its job? Has it worked and almost worked too well? Or was this just something that is political rhetoric being used by both sides.
5: Yeah, no, if you look at it this way, from the Tea Party and the people that want to make cuts, no matter what happens, it, it worked. In other words, this is one of the few times when you really did uh, save money and and, um, and have some cuts. If you look at how efficient the uh, Air Force is today when they can't train their Air and things like that, it's a terrible way to do it. And it was especially terrible to do it halfway through the fiscal year because that really meant that you had to do a double double sequester.
6: Alan Moore. Yeah, the thing about sequester is it did cut spending, but it didn't attack the fundamental challenges that the country faces long-term with spending, which all have to do with entitlements, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, Um, disability insurance, all the things that are growing very rapidly with the retirement of the baby boomers and with the continuing escalation of costs in uh, in, health care. Most people who've looked at this stuff know that really hard decisions in those areas need to be made. Most economists will say that's where the priority needs to be. The sequester was thought to be such a blunt and and stupid tool that we would never allow it to happen. Lo and behold, we did. Spending did get cut. We're still struggling and will continue to as it grows if we don't change it um, uh, with with that sequester. Let me say one word, though, about Obamacare. Obamacare is not going to be repealed. Most people understand and, and, and respect that, at least while while uh, Obama's in the presidency. Having said that, and what, what, what the House tried to do recently was to say, okay, we'll give a vote on repeal of Obamacare, we'll keep it out of the budget, and then uh, we, the, we mostly know that the Senate won't go along, the President won't go along, but you'll get your vote. And House members have said, and some senators who say, uh, no. We're interested in real stuff, not symbolic stuff. The question is, is there anything relating to Obamacare that might be modified somewhat that would at least be a real bone instead of a fake bone, if you will, uh, to those who uh, would would like to repeal? And I think there are some possible things around the edges that could be put into the continuing spending bill, the budget resolution, wouldn't have to be attached directly to debt limit, but they're both tied in together. Well, you can have a debt de- de- limit, and you can have some a some few changes, maybe postponements of elements of, post, uh, of well, Obamacare. Alan, Alan, let me go think about
0: something that you brought up earlier in, in your comment, though, and I want to take this to Chuck Boucher. Chuck, when when, when we look at the, the effectiveness or ineffectiveness of sequester, depending on how you look at it, it seems that sequester did a good job at cutting down the actual discretionary spending allowed by the federal government. It doesn't really hit the biggest chunk of the budget, which is the non-discretionary spending, which is your Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, and health benefits. It, it, it seems to me that the sequester was more of a Band-Aid than a reality. Is, is there? Are we still behind the eight ball when it comes to the big portion of the budget, the non-discretionary spending?
5: Yeah, oh, no, absolutely. It had no effect, practically, on the non-discretionary (laughs) spending.
0: Congressman Allen,
1: I am astonished that somebody hasn't realized that if you're going to deal with the entitlements, the committee system of the Congress does its best work when you give them the right to move in and work on something and cut the compromises at the committee level and and move it on out. Those are very complicated issues and having them done on the floor uh, happenstance, whatever whatever somebody finds is a political advantage is not the way to deal with those issues. And uh, the leadership uh, of both parties, I think, are are guilty of not trying to separate those out, get a working group working on those while we fiddle around with all this other crap. That's
5: that's one of the problems that we've had with the way the, the budget deals have been done because it's been the president working with Boehner for leadership, and you didn't really have the committee structure. Uh, working at all. But
0: wouldn't that bog it down? I mean, it would would take it seems to me like all we're doing is adding another bureaucratic level by including the committees instead of having
2: the deals. The the deals haven't
0: worked.
3: Absolutely. I mean, it it, it gives you, it gives them cover. Um, If if you let the committees negotiate, what will probably happen is that they'll get to about 85% agreement. Now, if you can get to 85% agreement and only have 15% left, that's when you bump that up. And that's when you can say, now we start you know dealing back and forth. Otherwise, you're going to have to go into the minutia. And the minutia, by the way, can be fighting over periods of commas. You don't want the President of the United States filing over you know periods and commas. You want the President of the United States Speaker and Harry Reid to be fighting over key issues.
4: Carl Tumann. I don't remember exactly what the President uh, offered, but at different times, he has offered to negotiate on entitlements. And every time he offers to negotiate on entitlements, the other side kind of turns its way. Then they walk away. So if you throw all this into Congress, you're still going to have the other side walking away. And the president has tried to give some leadership on this. The other thing that's disturbing is uh, Paulson was on uh, TV over the weekend, said, you know, we are growing at 2%. It's a low rate. But we're leading the world as far as, as what we're doing, and we've got our our uh, exports are higher. Uh, we have uh, over the past two years, we we've, we've cut down a lot on debt, whether it's sequestration or whether it's however the government is doing it. We have we've cut down on the debt, and 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 you know, and then you have this this one segment in in the house that holds everything hostage, which is, you know, which is
0: ridiculous. Well, and speaking of of, uh, Hank Paulson, former Treasury Secretary, we're basically at the five-year mark since the economic meltdown of 2008. As somebody who's been around and looking at this issue in particular, is our economy in worse shape, better shape than we were when Hank Paulson had to deal with the 2008
5: meltdown? Oh, we're in much better shape in 2008, but what we haven't achieved is we really haven't got any major reform in the big banks or in some of the uh, stock market. In other words, some of our markets today are just as fragile in the dependence on the repo market and things like that. So we got a lot of potential problems still unresolved out there in, in that, but we are much better off. Than that. Now, one thing I really differed with Paulson the other day when he was talking on those programs was he said that, you know, we we got to accept the fact that we need these kind of, kind of crises will happen every so many years, and the government's got to be ready to step in and, and solve them. Well, I don't think we should uh, have ourselves set up to these kind of crises every few years, and for many years we didn't have them, so I do believe that we still have some uh, work to do to try to have a more solid banking system uh, budgeting system for the government and uh, stock market uh, oversight and things like that
6: Alan Moore last word yeah I was just gonna say there there was a comment that we've that we've reduced the debt we have not reduced the debt we've not reduced the debt a dime the debt is it continues to increase at a very rapid rate thus the, the debt ceiling thats the debt ceiling problem yeah. we have we have lowered the annual deficit from from over a trillion dollars to currently about $760 billion, prior to the last five years, those would have been historic highs.
0: Right. We are
6: still spending grotesquely more than we are bringing in in revenue, and this is the, this is the problem that motivates um, the Tea Party, that motivates a lot of Americans who say, my life isn't any better, and how is it going to get any better when the government continues to spend so much more than it brings in?
2: Bob Hines, you actually have the All last right. word. And what Alan says is exactly right. And if, between now and 15, it's going to continue to go down, the deficit, annual deficit. Once we go away from, once we get past 15, Given if we do nothing at all just to where it is right now, don't no, no more spending bills, we're going to go just right through the ceiling by 25 we will be worse than we are today. Is that not fair, Chuck? Well, that's great. Yeah, I mean, it's just a very short gut duck. It's going right back up real quick.
0: Well, interesting point. Now, just when we thought the debt ceiling was a mess, we're going to talk budget when we come back. And, by the way, it's the top of the hour, it's 5 o'clock here at Shelley's, which means it's happy hour. <laughs> So we'll be back in three minutes. Stay with us. This is Backroom Politics Live on Blog Talk Radio. We'll be back. Happy Hour on Backroom Politics is sponsored by Shelly's Backroom, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., America's premier cigar tavern stay with us as the roundtable continues after we order our drinks order our cigars and get ready for the second hour of backroom politics stay with us we'll be back in two minutes here in Shelly's back room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Apparently, half the gang decided to just go off and wander around Shelly's. I don't know where half the gang is. Bob's starting to come back. Congressman Al is somewhere on Walkabout. He'll get back soon. And I don't even know where Chuck is. He'll be back for our (laughs) second segment. But when they get back, at some point, I probably would like to talk about the budget, but please, take your time. It's live radio. We're on the air. Yeah, the air. yeah just let you know. Well, so, anyway. I had an important meeting. Yeah, I bet you did. So core strength this yeah, present. Yeah, no kidding. So, now that we're back on the air, kids, uh, just we're going to talk a little bit of budget crisis issue right now. Uh, the the uh, fiscal year is coming to an end here in 13 days. And thus begins a new fiscal year, a new fiscal year of, well, not another budget. Uh, Chuck, how many years has it been since we've actually seen anything resembling a
5: budget in federal government?
0: Nothing in this administration.
5: Nothing in this administration. And it goes back even further. And my favorite story is when we changed the fiscal year. Why the Republicans had come in and John Chafee, the new Secretary of the Navy, said to the Assistant Secretary of the Navy, who had been a staff person on the Appropriations Committee, why are we changing the fiscal year of the federal government? Because we've just got all the states on the same fiscal year of the federal government. (laughs) And he said, "Well, we don't ever want to have another continuing resolution, so that's why we're."
0: Here. <laughs> the irony. Oh, of oh that, didn't that work out? That. The irony of that is <laughs> huge. Yeah. Well, in a uh, <laughs> apparently, that's even better. Oh. I love that. Uh, <laughs> welcome back, Congressman. I'm delighted to be here. <laughs> Good to
1: see you. I just hey, had a little business to do out on the street. <laughs> uh, I don't even want to know. Uh, to spend,
0: don't even want to but know. My, it goes crazy. Uh, yeah, exactly. And speaking of crazy deals done on the street, uh, Harry Reid and Mitch McConnell, in, in an odd sort of way, have gone to John Boehner. And the quote is, send us something. Uh the, the, the budget crisis is coming forward. The House is pretty much steadfast against, well, pretty much everything. And the Senate is pretty much saying, well, we got nothing here, so we've got a vacuum. Chuck, i, I got to ask you, when the Senate is going to the Speaker of the House, in this case, John Boehner, the Republican Speaker of the House, and saying, send us something, does that give you any sort of confidence of anything getting done, or are we literally just saying, you know, what's the worst
5: that can happen? Well, I think that they're trying to prevent the worst thing and that is that the, the house doesn't do anything, you know, in other words, they kind of really have to get the house starting uh, to, to do something and that's why they had that meeting and that and, uh, eventually they will, in other words, there's, there's no question that uh, there'll be a lot of dancing around uh, in the next few uh, weeks, but I think there will be a short-term extension, and then they'll... Uh... But,
0: Congressman Al, does it seem fair that the Senate Majority and Minority Leader come together and pretty much told the House, get off your rear ends? What was the question? Does it, does it seem fair that the Senate Majority Leader and Minority Leader are basically putting the whole total onus on the House of Representatives, which we know is already fractured?
1: I think that's fair.
0: It is fair. Yeah. Why so? Well, because the House, Chuck just said it,
1: yeah. uh, and I would have to repeat him. the House doesn't do anything. And the Senate, therefore, uh, can, can work on something and know that it's dead on arrival in the House. So why not have the House send something over that the, that the Senate can work on? I don't think that's going to accomplish a whole lot, but uh, I don't think it's unfair, and uh, I don't think there are a lot of alternatives. But, you know, an
0: interesting comment out of the uh, the joint presser that uh, McConnell and Reid both did, uh, and I quote, McConnell said, it's up to them. We will react to what they send us and be happy to vote at it at some point. Again, not showing a lot of confidence that the House can do anything.
6: Alan Moore. Well, the House needs to initiate the appropriations bills so it's no big deal for the the leadership to just remind everybody that we are waiting for you and that's all that's happening here it's just a little bit of posturing i do think something rather interesting though and rare occurred around this table moments ago because because Al, who typically likes to trash the Senate and the so-called filibuster rules, wanting the Senate to be more like the House, if you will, was the one who said, the House does nothing. So an interesting little irony that Mr. Trash the Senate is now turned on the House, perhaps wishing that the House could be more like the Senate. One has to love it. I i trashing
1: the Tea Party. The Tea Party <laughs> is the problem. Uh, I have a lot of respect for John Boehner, though I don't agree with him on much of anything, but uh, but he is a guy who has demonstrated an ability to work with Democrats, he's demonstrated the ability to compromise and what have you, but he's got one foot nailed to the floor by the Tea Party, and uh, what can he do in a case like that? So it's it's... I must admit that when it gets down to expecting the Senate to do something, uh, you've got a real problem on your hands. But,
0: Chuck,
4: last week uh,
0: the House put on the shelf a two-step plan that would have funded government as a separate vote, basically another continuing resolution. They showed that. That's off the table. Uh, And there doesn't seem to be any contingency plan or plan B in the House, let alone any sort of push suggestions coming out of the Senate. Where's the leadership going to come from on this?
5: Well, uh, it's hard to predict, but um, there will have to be some leadership developed here uh, at some point. And, um, and so uh, I would suspect the House will do something uh pretty soon.
1: Congressman Allen, We are arriving at a point where, as unlikely as it is, Somebody's going to have to fall on their sword. Yeah. And I'm afraid the candidate number one is John Boehner. And I think, talk about fair, I think that is wholly unfair to John Boehner. But I don't see any other uh, candidate to do that.
4: Carl yes, Well, One thing uh, it's, it, I find it interesting is how John Boehner is going to look at uh, Mitch McConnell unless... Mr. McConnell has already told John Boehner, I'm going to do this and, and transfer. The other thing is is that uh, John Boehner, uh, the Speaker is going to have to work with the minority in order to get something moving and get some votes that he needs because he's not going to get it from the Tea Party. And but
1: he's going to be seriously criticized by the Tea Party if he does that. That's right, what right, I mean by falling on short. The thing is,
4: is, is that if, if he does that, He's going to get credit for getting the House to do something, even though
2: he needed Democratic votes to do it. Bob Hines. It isn't so much a lack of leadership we have in the House. It's a lack of followership. That's something that uh, uh, is in slight existence right now. Fundamentally, uh, it's on the Republican side. Uh, The about 60 members who feel very, very strongly uh, that... um, that they don't want to compromise at all, um, which flies in the face of what a legislative body is, which is a body that um, two sides have to come together and find some common ground. And it, they they're not looking for common ground; they're looking for my ground. Uh, I don't know how it's going to end. I think it it may very well end badly uh, for the Republican Party, for John Boehner, and uh, uh, for a lot of other people.
1: And and. Their insistence that they're going to have to deal with Obamacare, they're going to unfund it or they're going to repeal it or something, around this table, we've all just said that ain't going to happen. But as long as the Tea Party is there, Boehner is going to have to live with that issue because they keep bringing it up.
0: But, uh, Chuck Bowser, it it seems to me like the, the Republicans will literally plug into any subject or any type of federal spending in order to get their message across, i.e., you got the proposal by uh, House Majority Leader Eric Cantor to cut the food stamp program, saying that this is just one other way that government is just spending way too much. We're going to cut, at, at, at one estimate by the CBO, another 2.1, or I'm sorry, another uh, 3.8 million by the end of 2014. It, it, that's obviously not going to sit well with a lot of particularly liberal Democrats
5: in the House. Yeah, and also some agriculture, uh, some Republicans from agriculture states who always saw that there was the uh, the deal made many years ago, and that is the agriculture uh, representative, state representative, they would support the bill, and the liberals would support it for the food stamp programs and things like that, and that just shows how fractured uh, the house is today uh, on any issue that that fact comes
0: up. But yeah. it, it strikes me, Chuck, also that you know when when we look at the budget process, when we look at the presidential budget request coming out and they get the Christmas list together and they send it up to Congress um, for their approval, uh, it almost seems to me that the message of "Hey, that's too high." We haven't had a budget. The PBR doesn't show a lot of prime fiscal thinking coming out not out of the White House, but at the department level, and even at the component agency level. Is there a mentality that's got to change here?
5: Well, There's one thing that could change, I think, at some point, and it really, I watched it, uh, it uh, we were coming out of the Vietnam War, McNamara made all the decisions at the Pentagon at the top, and when Mel Laird, a very shrewd congressional guy, um, when he came in, he, he made some real cuts by giving fiscal guidance and then letting the military figure out how to make those cuts. I think at some point that's the deal that uh, the military and the defense contractors and everybody is going to want, and I think that's what uh, I expect. I wouldn't be surprised uh, sometime between now and the end of the year that that might be one of the compromises that gets thrown in that will be attached to the um, continuing resolution.
1: Congressman it? Are there enough things like food stamps that you can cut cut sufficiently to make any real dent in what we're trying to do if you don't deal with the entitlements? And the chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee has been working on a a tax plan, uh, but he doesn't seem to get any opportunity to bring that forward so we're not really working on the where the where the big cuts are and we're running around uh, grounding airplanes for the Air Force and uh, grounding poor people on grinding poor people uh, yeah. on the on food yeah. stamps and none of which is going to do the job Denise crap
3: I thought it's, they're going to tie two days and, and that's enough and days Just the farm bill with what's going on with the budget, because that will give them the votes that they're going to need. Uh, they, they need to lump as many things as people want into one omnibus yeah. bill yeah. that makes them want to vote for this. And you're, you're, you know, we've been talking about the budget, we've been talking about the deficit, um, you know, and the spending levels. But the farm bill is the other one that really is going to hurt the Midwest, and that's where they can pick up the votes. So they'll put it all in an omnibus. Now, what I'm willing to bet Boehner is doing right now is saying, look, you can either play with me or not play with me. If you don't play with me, I go to the Democrats. The response is probably, if you go to the Democrats, we're going to do a vote against you. We'll try to see if we can upend you as the speaker. If that conversation occurs, Boehner is counting the votes right now to make sure that he could withstand being speaker. And my guess is what's going to happen he if they make a play against him, the Democrats are going to try to support Boehner and say, if I get the, right, the rules right, then you start voting for Speaker. Democrats can vote for Speaker, right? Okay. So the Democrats vote for Boehner, for Speaker, and say, tell Tea Party or folks, go pounce down, sit down, shut up, and let us rule Congress. But, Bob, is
0: that support that the Speaker really wants or can afford to have right now?
2: I would, uh, right now I would say no. It's not things aren't that desperate uh, or crazy. That, that is crazy. But it's, it's possible. But the reality is that there has got to be a recognition on both sides that compromise is necessary, and on both sides we have a situation where there, it is not yet so pressing in front of them that they're not willing to give. I, I, I speak from on the, against the liberals, and I speak against the Tea Party people. But Chuck Bowser when, when we
0: when we well, talked about uh,
1: it I don't, Congressman Al, I don't trust Nancy Pelosi to go along with protecting the Speaker. I mean, her whole history is if she gets a chance to bring him down, she bring him down. She's still bitter from the last time she was voted out. Well, and that's the way she, she thinks, and that's the way she works. Uh, and and I think that <laughs> what was described is is really workable if the Democrats will go along with it, but uh, I, I would really want to know where Nancy Pelosi's going to be
4: before I try to... If that happens, though, if that happens, the Tea Party people are going to be shown that they are the ones who were pulling this whole thing down, and a lot of changes could come out of that as far as districts that they have that they could lose, and the Democrats, she could take over 2014
1: and and that's logical and reasonable and I uh, haven't been a long time since I've seen her do anything logical and reasonable. And, and
2: I can get a pink unicorn for Christmas yeah, and, I think, and I think given given uh, the, uh, the redistricting structure that the, the, with the 65-35 yeah. it's so many so many districts around the country it'd be very difficult to see the Tea Party people Going back home and say, look what I did, look what I did, and say people we didn't like
0: it. I don't think
2: Alan
6: Yeah, I think there's no way that John Boehner is going to want to serve as the the Speaker of the House with a with a minority of Republicans uh, supporting him. Um, it's it there's just no scenario that works if he no. suddenly has no, the support no. of a lot of Democrats and and less than the 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 unified party. Having said that, it's really hard for him to. To maintain unity when he's got two really powerfully disparate factions that he's wrestling with. Now, Al asked the question before: Can we really solve the the, the budget stuff without doing the big stuff? Answer: No. We we talked about it in the first segment. Um, it's it, nobody has a stomach for it. The president has put a few things on the table. Let's not get him get carried away, patting him too heavily on the back. He he proposed the, the big thing he proposed was to change the measure of the annual uh, increase in benefits for Social Security using, instead of the Consumer Price Index, something called a change price index. Uh, hard to understand, but over time, makes a huge difference. Republicans didn't jump on it and say, terrific, and the Democrats said, whoa, 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 wait a minute. But the price for any of these changes has always been more taxes. So, So he's put some stuff out there, but he's packaged it in a way that has very little appeal really to anybody. The Democrats aren't jumping on board, and the, de- the Republicans are saying, you keep coming back to taxes. We just put hundreds of billions of dollars of new taxes on- onto the, uh, into the U.S. economy at the end of December. We've already done that part. Quit, quit talking about it. I, did- I also want to say one thing about the notion of, of can we do it by, by beating up on, the- on, the- on-, on uh, food stamp recipients? Food stamps in 2007 were about about $35 billion a year. big chunk of money, something over 20 million people were receiving them. Today we're spending $83 billion in food stamps, and of almost 50 million people are receiving them. And the proposal in the House that's getting all the controversy and is being talked as beating up on the poor folks is addressed only at... Um, it, at At unemployed individuals, not parents, not families, unemployed individuals, the total they're talking about is is less than five percent of the total. It's about four billion a year, forty billion over ten. So they say, "Oh, you're going to take forty billion dollars out of food stamps. We're going to take forty billion dollars out of food stamps, which is less than five percent of what we expect it to spend over the next ten years. Not that that's easy. Not that it's a slam dunk, easy, logical, fair thing, but it's but it, it's 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 quite a, a, a modest item. Yeah, but Alan, you got the Democrats
0: program. but you've got the Democrats saying explain that to the two point mm-hmm. eight million that would lose the benefits over the next two years. Absolutely eight hundred fifty thousand households that would mm-hmm. lose the ninety dollars a month in benefits we're not talking
6: about households here we're, we, we, we're talking about individuals who are not heads
0: of household who don't have
6: kids but, the,
0: so, but even the proposal the CBO is saying you're talking about a ninety dollar a month reduction to eight hundred thousand households whether you want to put it on look, the individual or on look, the household it's if, still a ninety dollar reduction the, the
6: point is we're running eight hundred billion dollar deficits As far as the well, they decline a little, and as Bob said earlier, in 2015 they start climbing up again. We are we are talking, as Al said, around the edges of the bigger problem that there is no stomach for. So we're hung up on sequestrations and on 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 cancelling out Obamacare, farm bills, on, on on. on food stamps, you have to look at the micro world, at the small programs, and you have to look at the really big stuff. Nobody is showing a huge stomach for looking very hard at either one. Congressman now, If I were in Congress
1: today, I would oppose uh, the cut in the food stamps. If you go deal first with the uh, entitlement, then, then the reality becomes the Democrats have got to give up something. They'll give up something in those compromises on the on, and and they might then have to face you know, the 5% that you're but talking Congressman about. Congressman
0: Allen, you touch that third rail, you've got AARP, one of the biggest lobbies in town, right on you, and then explain back to your retired constituents, hey, we're going to have to deal, we're going to make some very, you know, we're going to have to make some very painful decisions, in drawing down the non-discretionary spending. It's not an easy message to sell when you're trying to get re-elected.
1: No, that's the reason I think that, that, that people are going to have to start looking at their sword uh, and wondering when the time is to fall
2: well, on it. Bob mind If we don't deal with the entitlement problems, and over a long period of time, you know, raise some money it doesn't make any difference by anything else. I mean, this, these are the two problems that we've got that we have to get a hold of, and obviously we have to raise some money, but we have to ex- we have to change the t- entitlement programs. If we don't, by the time we get to twenty thirty five or forty, we are going to be so deep in that we're going to have to hot New England, uh, see if I'm going to buy New England so we can get some money. <laughs> oh. And it's and it's. <laughs>
1: Such that if if we could deal with the entitlements and get some compromises there, which Democrats over a long period of time and Democrats will oppose it. Chuck Bowser.
5: Well, I'd like to raise two two questions rather than give you an answer here. Two questions for the group. One is that um, when does the big financial people of this country, who are all practically Republicans, move in and start putting pressure on the Republican Party in this budget deal uh, so that their markets don't tank, so that their big uh, defense contractors get uh, their business. Net. That seems to me to be some issue. I think Denise has got a good point on how this might play out as an on-the-bus uh, continuing resolution later in around Chuck, I want, to, I want to go back to the first uh, But question. I do believe that it isn't just an intramural battle over on the Capitol Hill. I think that some, at some point, some really big, influential people, and primarily on the Republican side, and Bob, you were kind of in that world of the important uh, people. What do you think?
2: Well, I would say this. If... If the Democratic... If your cigar doesn't fall apart... It won't. If, go, okay, if, if the, right the lead... won't, trust, glued yeah. together. If the, Answer if, the question! If, if, I'm trying to. <laughs> if if there is any indication on the part of Democratic leadership in the House and Senate, but I think it's more likely in the House, to adjust on a long-term basis, 20 years, 25 years, changes in the, in the entitlement programs, I suspect... That what that the kinds of folks that Chuck is talking about, the big industrialists, the big businesses, the uh, the banks, the, the, particularly the, the people who hire and fire people, and 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 pay the pension programs and pay the social security stuff. That is those are the people who will step in, but they won't. There's no reason to do it now because the Democrats say we're not going to change anything until the year four thousand eight hundred and twenty two. I wanna I wanna go back to what Chuck's question though. When you
0: Chuck, when you say when are the, the big financial moguls your JP Morgan's, your Chase, your Bank of America, Merrill Lynch's, why would they? The market is seeing the best September they've seen in a long time. They're making record profits again. When you look at the when you look at the industrialists, let's take for example, your large scale government contractors like Mild Employer, General Dynamics, Boeing, Northrop Grumman. Why would they? Because then spending is still at a rampant rate, and they're still making
5: money for their shareholders. Well, the only reason they would do it is if you get into chaos and the uh, continuing resolution and the uh, 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 the debt ceiling, thing and you don't get some kind of a, at least a temporary fix, they're going to get nervous because those markets aren't going to be doing as well as you just described. No question, they've had a good run, and that's why they they haven't you know they've been ignoring Washington. I mean, their numbers yeah,
0: are topic what They were doing pre-2008. Yeah. yeah,
5: but let me tell you, if all of a sudden chaos in Washington starts to impact their world, they they, they will uh, they'll respond. They'll respond. To these scrap? Well, two
4: things.
3: First. They're going to respond because the United States is actually helping everybody else pull out of their own doldrums. I mean, Europe's not doing great, Asia's not doing great, and the United States seems to be the one that's actually moving forward unlike the other areas. So that's the first thing why J.P. Morgan and the others are going to pull in. The second thing is the Dems aren't as solid as they think they are. When the AFL-CIO comes out, how they did last week, and they literally say, don't assume we're in your pocket anymore, that's a huge red sign for the Democratic Party Oh my! We may not have the base that we had in the past because if AFL-CIO and some of the other labor unions are saying you have not supported us, we may go to the Republicans. So the Democrats are going to have their own issues to have to deal with with Obamacare and some of the other financial areas they're going to have to resolve before they can start doing some other I want to things. go
0: back. I want to go back to the original point you made, though. When you talk about you know us bailing out Europe, when you look at the people who should be talking Europe, your your RBSs, your UBS, you know those institutions. RBS is seeing record numbers. UBS hasn't seen numbers like this since its existence. They're all seeing bang-up markets globally. Alan Moore. You know, <clears throat> profits is one thing, but
6: it, and, and let's not refer to these companies as individuals. It's not J.P. Morgan, the person. Um it's He's still that Very senior level, wealthy people from around the country, thought leaders and so on. You're Warren who, Buffett? Who are, in fact, in regular contact with people that they know in Washington. They sing from different hymnals. They don't all uh, agree with the same stuff. And there are plenty of Republicans and plenty of Democrats who hear from Senior business leaders who are very very nervous about the future. It's not about this quarter's profits, this year's profits. They're worrying about them, yes, but about next year, the year after, the next five years. Are we talking about Jamie Dimon? But what we're, we're, t- we're just about anybody you could mention who's a who's a who's a, a wealthy leader who's got any contact at all with Washington is in some conversations. What we don't have is anybody who has the ear of. 50 to 60 yeah. very conservative members of the House, they could say, I don't care what Warren Buffett or Jamie Diamond or anybody else you can name thinks of, I don't represent them, I don't rely on them for funding, I don't rely on them for votes. I was put here by people who said, Washington is broken, the two parties are in bed with each other. They made the decisions over the last 20 years that caused the economy to crash and crater, who made the decisions that caused us to spend way more than we bring in. Don't confuse me with details. I know what I believe and what my constituents believe. So I don't think that it's a lack of people from business, wealth, universities, universities, journalists, and so on. We know what they're saying, but they don't have the... First of all, they don't all agree on what should be done. There are big givers, big wealthy industrialists and financiers who give big to the Democrats and big to the Republicans, and there are a lot of people in both parties who could
0: care less but, 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 what but they I, think. Alan, I, I want to go back and I want to ask, who are these people? The only one we really hear about talking about this is Warren Buffett. He's the only one that we we hear about. of these people
6: don't want to call attention to themselves. They have relationships. They give money. They have employees who give money. They have PACs. There's all kinds of conversations all the time between them and elected officials and executive branch officials. And both the Congress, and particularly the executive branch, attracts these people. They come in. They serve. They spend time there and then they go back in, uh, to, the, to the vilified industries in a political sense that they came from. Carl I, Tuvin? I,
4: I, I can't name who they are, but there have been Republicans who have come to Washington and have tried to talk to Republicans in the House and in the Senate and then they get frustrated and walk away. Yeah. And this has happened over the last two years. And it's true. Denise Krupp? All right. Well, you bring
3: up Warren Buffett. I'd like to bring up his son, Howard Buffett, and his grandson, Howard Buffett. Um, Howard Buffett, the son, has got some very interesting ideas on the farm bill and how he wants to make sure that people in Africa can grow grain. In fact, He actually wrote an op-ed two years ago that said that we shouldn't ship U.S.-grown grain on U.S. ships. We should let Africans grow their grain. That's a really interesting perspective coming out of Warren Buffett, you know Warren Buffett's son. His grandson was a political appointee in the Obama administration who served in the Department of Defense and then was providing advice for the Department of Agriculture and then also worked in the White House. He's now in the private sector of the Columbia University. I bring that up because the grandson of Warren Buffett was doing a lot of work with NGOs and others to partner with the White House. So when you want to start talking about who some of these folks are, it's their sons and it's their grandsons that are coming in and providing some very interesting
0: advice. But Chuck Boucher, when, when we look at, you know, everybody trying to come to the table and offering advice to Congress, what we don't see is those individual members. For example, we've been hearing that there's going to be a BRAC commission again no BRAC commission has been convened when we hear about BRAC that immediately sends everybody into a dizzy you're not shutting down my base that's going to cost jobs but we continue to spend at record levels what's it going to take to see a BRAC or a cost-cutting mechanism to come into play and have some real tea
5: well I think just to uh, take up the defense area by itself uh, not by itself, but uh, in the more total picture, and that is this vote on... Um, uh, it was very uh, clear here that the president didn't have the votes uh, because America, uh, across the board, Republicans and Democrats, were tired of these Middle East wars. And so all of a sudden you have a whole new dimension here on the defense side where the the defense contractors, the Defense uh, Department has had a nucleus of support in the Congress since World War II. That looks like it might not be there. Uh, Do you see see it dissolving? I do. And uh, and I do believe that that opens up uh, a big uh, opportunity for budget savings. Because you can have a strong defense, the strongest in the world, and not be spending as much money as we're spending on defense and I think that might get brought into this uh, uh, negotiation in the next year or two, even before the entitlements. I think the entitlements are going to be maybe next administration's big issue, but you mean but
0: from what I'm hearing you say though Chuck is that the the administration in particular, the Defense Department is ready to go to Northrop Grumman, saying you're not building that next carrier. Going to General Dynamics, saying you're not building that next sub. And by the way, going to Boeing, saying you're not building that next joint yeah, No, it's carrier. not
5: going to be the Defense Department going to them. It's going to be that the members in Congress, the 60 guy people, and everything like that, when they come over for the next bom- bomber, they're going to say, why Why do we need a bomber? We've got drones. Uh, and so there's going to be a lot of second-guessing, I think, of the traditional uh, defense. Uh, why would we build, spend $4 billion to move the airport in Okinawa to another part of Okinawa? Uh, and so I think there's going to be those kind of questions that are popping up here. Denise Kraft.
3: And I agree with you. That comes down to the fact that there are very few veterans in Congress mm-hmm. right now mm-hmm. and there are incredibly few veterans in the administration. I mean, Justin The National Journal did a poll where they said this current uh, administration only has 9% political appointees for veterans. I mean, I think I was probably the only veteran at the Department of Transportation. I mean, I I couldn't believe it. I was the only veteran. That's not what you would have found in prior administrations because, you know, you would have found more veterans and you would have found more friends. You're only appointee veteran, by the
0: way. I was the only
3: appointee veteran. There were a lot of other veterans, but the fact that I was the only appointee veteran was mind-boggling.
6: That's hurting the defense industry. Well, just just a word on on defense spending. Um, It is clear, as the president was learning before he was bailed out from having to get a vote in Congress on whether to take a unbelievably small shot at, uh, in in Secretary Kerry's words, at uh, at Syria. he, he was he was on the verge of losing. It was it was uh, in, in increasingly appearing, um, but I don't think that fact that the hesitation to engage necessarily translates to less spending. The spending is driven by local politics. The the, the Congress has shown year after year after year a willingness to ignore the recommendations of the military leaders on what we need and when we need it to protect the homegrown uh, jobs that are spread in every congressional district and all over the country. So yes, we are likely to engage less. Yes, we are likely to continue to pull out of Afghanistan even if some experts say, we're giving up on some of the gains we made but I'm not sure that translates to less spending. The only way it it, it begins to translate to less spending is if we have significant reductions in force. That shrinks certain bases, but it keeps the procurement process of buying more and more fancy weapons, drones and bombers. You talk to the manufacturer of bombers and say, how about it? Can we give up those bombers because we got drones? They will yell and
0: scream and throw themselves... But we have even talked about the civilian side. Chuck Bowser you know, we've heard Republicans scream and yell, why do we need a Department of Energy? It's outlived its usefulness. You know, why are we still funding organizations? I don't want to get kicked for this. Like Department of Education, HUD, uh, HHS. A lot of these functions could be handled at the state level, yet we continue to increase funding to these departments as a whole. Is, is there a hypocrisy? We just heard uh, the governor of Oklahoma talking how important education is, we don't see them calling for, let's do away with the Department of Education. Let's take it. Where's the hypocrisy end?
5: Well, I, I don't think you're going to see those departments disappear. And the, the one thing you should recognize especially with the sequestering, a lot of those departments are going down in size. In other words, uh, uh, they, they have been um, uh, reducing uh, in uh, size like the my unit, uh, GAO, it was 5200 when I uh, went into office in 1981. It is now 2,800, the lowest since the 1930s. And uh, so a lot of that attrition, because as we've gone through these various budget battles, the way the leaders have been do- handling them is trying to protect the people that are already there. They're not hiring anybody. And you'd be surprised how
0: the... uh, Chuck, let's say, for example, your old organization, GAO. Yeah. You know, when we look at GAO, does the fact that it's reduced from your levels of over 5,000 down to under three, GAO has a very sustainable functionality in government. Right. Is that holding back the ability of the government to keep itself accountable? Oh, sure.
4: Yeah.
0: Yeah. Denise Krupp.
3: Absolutely. I I, I mean, I can't tell you how many GAO investigations I asked for. Uh, when I was in Congress. I mean, I've been in Congress as a congressional staffer, and then I was a political appointee. I mean, when you have a strong and powerful GAO, you can really do a heck of a lot of oversight. But when you have a GAO that's been flattened, which is what it's sounding like, you're not doing the oversight. I mean, there needs to be more oversight. And I say there needs to be more oversight of not only this administration, but probably future administrations is because of the money situation.
0: How has money been spent? And when you're looking at a rational money. Oversight costs money. And That's you need to do it. But oversight costs money. Educating our American public costs money. Providing health care to our public costs money. Then I would be willing to give up something else for oversight. What would you give up? What would you give
3: up? How many of those. Would you give up out- HUD? No. What I would be giving up is how many of those outdated World War II programs that currently exist that are no longer relevant, those are the ones that I'd be giving up. v a I don't know, but I'll tell you what, I would start willing and dealing to get oversight because you need oversight. You need oversight to make sure that people are properly spending
0: the money. But this, but this, this brings us to the whole, the whole quagmire that we deal with in Washington. It's a, you know, we've got to stop spending so much, but the second you take away something that is important to you as a voter, they are like, oh, no, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute, we're not t- taking that away, Congressman Al.
1: I just keep coming back to this point. If, if we would first deal with the really difficult, complicated problems with the entitlements, we would save lots of money. Yeah. Then we look at these things and they don't become so important anymore. So you don't have to cut them as much, or you don't have to maybe cut them at all. And, and you can deal with the local politics on those, whether we close this base or something else. But if, if, as long as those entitlements are out there gobbling up most of the money, uh, that's not going to happen. he's
0: crap.
4: And one of the
3: entitlements that we haven't talked about is VA. I mean, VA is going to skyrocket because of the number of men and women who have served our country valiantly over the past 10 years. I mean, the VA has suffered. The VA is not processing claims. But I can tell you one thing, if you try to go against, you know, the changes that are happening in the VA right now, that, that is going to be a huge one. I mean, people talk about the AARP being a rallying point.
0: The VA and and what those benefits are about to be the next big rallying point. But again, it, it's a matter of, you know, supporting our veterans cost money. As somebody who's benefited from VA, as a veteran myself, I can tell you, you know, I haven't taken advantage of the housing loan guarantee yet. Do I want to? Absolutely. Of course, that's
1: correct. And what I am saying is, if you're not going to deal with the big ones first, you're left with nickel and diming all the other programs. But then let me ask you
3: the question. I mean, I, I, we're sitting here with you. Would you, as somebody who is, you're 65, who is 65 and looking, oh, I wish, well, and I who is looking right. fantastic for 65, would you be, would you be willing? to give up certain benefits.
0: I mean, at this table, would you guys be willing to give up benefits? Yes, I would. Yeah, I was
6: offered it up before.
0: Yeah. yeah. Well, this, this brings up a very good question, though. Chuck Bowser, why is means testing so vilified when it comes to situations like Social Security?
5: Because it doesn't produce a lot of savings. Really? No. Yeah. I mean, it, everybody believes in it. <laughs> um, but the truth of the matter is, if you take away the Social Security check from the rich... Um, you save some money, but you don't uh, solve the uh, budget
4: deficit. I, I, I think Every
1: time I get a, a,
5: a dollar or two knocked off of my ticket at a
1: theater because I'm over 65, mm-hmm. I think hey, I don't need that money. Give it, give it to some young married couple that is struggling along, you know, and because I can afford to pay the outrageous prices they charge for. <laughs> prefer those things. Uh, n- not all old people are in the same thing, but we, we we forget that Social Security was set up at a time when my grandparents, and I knew all four of them, I was fortunate in that regard, they had nothing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, they had nothing. Right. And that's where we got this whole idea that all old people need help. Well, the world has changed a lot and a lot for the better for old people. And some old people still need help, and a lot of us don't. And uh, I, I, rem- I remember being in an AARP meeting in my district, and we went through the standard AARP whining, okay? And then afterwards, people were coming in and saying, now now don't let them do anything that will reduce my oil stocks. <laughs> Yeah, and I'm thinking, wait a minute,
5: yeah.
1: <laughs> what, what what is this, yeah. you know? And, and and so I think we make to, need to make distinctions between who is in need that were set in the 30s and 40s and are no longer true now.
6: Alan, more last word. Yeah, just one other one other word about Social Security in particular. Um, uh, On the one hand, Chuck is absolutely right. It's scary how many people in this country, and a growing number as the baby boomers retire, rely exclusively or nearly exclusively for subsistence on Social Security. Having said that, middle class, upper middle class folks who receive their checks rely on them Plan for them, have a belief that they're now getting back the return they were promised when they paid in all of this time. And if they end up with more money than they need, most of them say, I would rather figure out what to do with that extra money to give it to my kids, to give it to my church, to give it to needy neighbors, rather than turn it back to the government somehow. Because wealthier people get a much lower rate of return on their Social Security in the first place. They may or may not know that, but it's a very challenging matter to start messing with Social Security. We need to do it, but we need to be really careful how we do it. And Obviously, we're going to have to get money out of wealthier people and sort of leave the lower-income people alone, but it's a massive uh, challenge, and it undercuts this sort of notion that people have that, you pay in, then you get out, whatever you get out. And if somebody wants to take give you less, there's it, it breeds a lot of
1: resentment. I, ab- I absolutely agree with that. But I have my Social Security se- check sent directly to my broker. But,
5: but I not, don't, I don't, I don't. There's not many uh, older people that can, send <laughs> they can do Social that. Social Security right. check to their broker.
1: Right, and... <laughs> well, my, my point is, yeah. there not very many, point, but, but if, you're, if you're starting to talk yeah, about you know, reforms, yeah. there's one where I think maybe yeah. we should, you know, so yeah. you don't save them much money, but you make it fair. Yeah. But if you notice, the Republicans, even
5: when the president threw out that, uh, that change changing the CPI, right. the change CPI the ARC went right into full attack, uh, explaining to everybody over 70, how oh, their cost of living really goes up in health care costs and everything else, which is true. And so, you know, the Republicans won't even vote for that.
1: I don't I don't question that for a moment. Yeah. I think it's absurd, it's a political reality. Yeah. But yeah. that's where you can save yeah. some money.
2: Yeah. Bob Hines, last one before we end. It would be a very interesting thing if the government <laughs> would send a notice out to every social security recipients saying you paid in X dollars over your career thus far you have received X dollars that'd be a very interesting test
0: very interesting and it would
2: it would uh, it would probably make a whole lot of people like the AARP absolutely batshit. it but it would also <laughs> be a good lesson on how much money is is you know is being paid out that is beyond what you paid in. It'd be a nice, it'd be a nice test to see how people feel about it. Well,
0: we we've blown through this show. Surprisingly, we've only got a few more minutes left in the show. Um, I, I normally we would have tell me a story at this time. We're gonna to have to forego that to next week, hopefully, but.
4: What I, I object. <laughs> uh, he, he got
0: skipped last week, and we, I think he has.
4: One. Well, uh, unfortunately, times. I'm taking moderator's privilege, and we're going
0: to take a minute. He hates you. Uh, <laughs> I don't hate. No, because you can say the same thing. I hate Denise. Uh, Denise is getting the anyway.
2: I do want to take.
0: I do want to take a couple of minutes in this last uh, minute that we have and just say. Again, cannot reiterate our, our thoughts and prayers are, the, are out to those who lost their lives uh, in yesterday's tragic events over at the Washington Navy Yard.
2: Um, it's an ultimate
0: sacrifice that that's a debt that America can't repay. Just being a government service is public service, and to have to deal with that is just something that we wish on nobody, even our enemies. Um, Can I say something about them? Yeah, absolutely. Please do. There were 12 people right. who
6: died: nine men three women. They Eight of them were in their 50s. Their their age range was 46 to 73. They have families. They didn't go to work with any thought that they might not get home, that they might be murdered that day. And I just, by a crazy man, I just wanted to read their names. Please do. So Michael Arnold, Martin Bodrog, Arthur Daniels, Sylvia Frazier, Kathleen Gard, John Roger Johnson, Mary Frances Knight, Frank Kohler, Vishnu Pandit, Kenneth Bernard Proctor, Gerald L. Reed, and Richard Michael Riggel. They are the ones whose lives were taken by a deranged killer. And, uh, uh, Giving them a moment of our thought, as you suggest, yeah. uh, is certainly a worthy
0: we're, thing. We're going to do that. And, and, and to all those that were affected, we wish you Godspeed and recovery. Uh, with that, uh, I want to thank uh, Congressman Al Swift, Bob Hines, uh, Denise Krepp, Alan Moore, Carl Tubin. I want to especially thank our special guest, Chuck Bowser. Chuck, it's always a pleasure. Please come back and join us. Uh, but again, please keep those who lost their lives and that were affected yesterday in your mind. We're going to have a moment of
4: silence. This has been Backroom Politics Live on Block Talk Radio. Have a great week.